Right, we are back. I promised a follow-up on that article about uh, Apple's wonderful app to, uh, you know, let you know when and how often you're having sex, which causes me to cite a quote where some wag once pointed out that it used to be that necessity was the mother of invention, but in the modern world, invention often becomes the mother of necessity. You come up with something, now you got to convince people that they need it. This sort of stuff prompted an outburst from Farhad Manju in the New York Times, who asked recently, whatever happened to the tech industry's grand democratic vision of the future? When Microsoft, Apple, and other tech giants first launched, their founders dreamed big. They didn't simply target the rich or Americans or Westerners. They wanted to change the world. Google's founders gave themselves the audacious challenge of organizing every piece of data on the planet and making it available for free. Quote, even when it was far from clear they would ever make a penny, unquote, from the effort. By contrast, today's tech startups seem entirely focused on churning out lifestyle apps designed to help the lowest rung of the 1% live like their betters in the 0.1%. The best minds of Silicon Valley now cater to well-off Americans who want to order up cooks, cleaners, drivers, personal assistants, and other trappings of the wealthy directly from their phones. And in a related item from the news at a glance from the week, we have this. Many more ads are coming to your Instagram feed, said Jessica Gwynn in USA Today. Facebook, which bought the photo sharing app in 2012 for $1 billion, has since kept Instagram mostly ad-free, offering promoted posts to just a handful of selected brands. But in a sign that Facebook is now serious about making money on the service, the social network announced this week it will soon open up Instagram to any advertiser hoping to reach the platform's 300 million users. Of course, when it comes to making money via the internet, uh, this is something that uh, I've railed at before on this program. Since I have, sadly, spent many thousands of dollars for people that promised all these wonderful things they could do for me on the web, only to find that they couldn't deliver. So let's take a look at this business model of advertising on the web, shall we? Doug Bach-Clark wrote a piece in the New Republic that might be worth a quote or two. I will use the excerpted version that appeared in the week. Quote, every morning, Kim Kasapong strolls past barbed wire, six dogs, and a watchman in order to get to her job in a pink apartment building above the slums of Lapu-Lapu City, Philippines. She's a pretty, milk-skinned 17-year-old who's on her way to do her part in bringing down Facebook. Cape Song huffs off to the third floor, opens a door decorated with a crucifix, and greets her co-workers. The curtains are drawn, and the artificial moonlight of computer screens illuminates the room. Eight workers sit in two rows, their tools arranged on their desks. A computer, a minaret of cell phone SIM cards, and an old telephone. Richard Braggs, Kipe Song's boss, sits at a desk positioned behind his employees, occasionally glancing up from his double monitor to survey their screens. Even in the gloom, he wears Ray-Ban sunglasses to shield his eyes from the glare of his computer. And uh, Richard Braggs is an alias he uses for business purposes. Kipe Song inserts earbuds cues up dance music, and checks her clients' instructions. Their specifications are often quite pointed. A Sao Paulo gym might request 75 female Brazilian fitness fanatics, or a bar in San Francisco's Castro District might want 1,000 local gay men. Her current order is the most common. Fake Facebook profiles of beautiful American women between the ages of 20 and 30. Once the client has received the accounts, he will probably use them to sell Facebook likes 
to customers looking for an illicit social media boost. Most of the accounts Kypesong creates are sold to these digital middlemen, click farms, as they have come to be known. Just as fast as Silicon Valley conjures something valuable from digital ephemera, click farms seek ways to create counterfeits. Just Google buy Facebook likes and you'll see how easy it is to purchase black market influence on the internet. 1,000 Facebook likes for $29.99. 1,000 Twitter followers for $12 or any other type of fake social media credential from YouTube views to Pinterest followers to SoundCloud plays. Social media is now the engine of the internet and that engine is running on some pretty suspect fuel. Kypesong plays a role in hijacking the currencies of social media, Facebook likes, Twitter followers, by performing the same routine over and over again. She starts by entering the client's specifications into the website Fake Name Generator, which returns a sociologically realistic identity. Ashley Nivens, 21, from Nashville, Tennessee, now a student at New York University who works part-time at American Apparel. Kypesong then creates an email account. The email address forms the foundation of Ashley Niven's Facebook account, which is flushed out with a profile picture from photos that Bragg's workers have scraped from dating sites. The whole time, a proxy server makes it seem as though Kypesong is accessing the internet from Manhattan, and software disables the cookies that Facebook uses to track suspicious activity. Next, Kypesong inserts a SIM card into a Nokia cell phone a pre-touchscreen antique that's been used so much the digits on the keypad have worn away. Once the phone is live, she types its number into Nivens' Facebook profile and waits for a verification code to arrive via a text message. She enters the code into Facebook and voila! Ashley Nivens is, according to Facebook security algorithms, a real person. The whole process takes about three minutes. Now, the article goes on to explain how it used to be that the money to be made on the web was from spam. Well, not so much anymore. From 2010 to 2012, teams of internet security researchers and law enforcement officials dismantled several spam bot networks around the world. These efforts, combined with improved defenses of email hosts, effectively disabled many onliners in Cebu City, Philippines. They had to look for new ways to make money. Meanwhile, social media's takeover of the internet has been swift and dramatic. Between 2005 and 2012, the percentage of internet-using American adults on social media platforms mushroomed from 8 to 70 percent. In 2005, Facebook had 5.5 million users. At the end of 2014, it claimed 1.4 billion active monthly users, a little less than half the people in the world with internet access. In 2009, Facebook introduced the like button, which quickly became a way for people to celebrate an engagement or birth of a baby, but also for brands to get people to endorse their products. Companies love social media for the ostensible humanity it lent them. Sales leads that came through social media studies showed had a much higher chance of converting into actual purchases. Google and Bing's algorithms take social media into account, so large followings could also improve a company's position in search engine rankings. Celebrities and more minor personalities like bloggers trying to get endorsement deals have increasingly found their value measured in Facebook fans and Twitter followers and the payments they receive proportionate to their social media clout. Khloe Kardashian reportedly earns about $13,000 every time she tweets anything like, want to know how Old Navy makes your butt look scary good to her 14.5 million followers. 
To help companies, celebrities, and everyday people boost their social media standing, onliners set up internet stores, click farms, where customers can buy social media influence. Click farms can be found around the globe, but most are commonly based in developing world in countries like India, Indonesia, Bangladesh, and the Philippines. Most are run by smaller teams that manage software to give digital life to accounts like Ashley Nivens. Notes Doug Bach-Clark, Click Farms jeopardize the existential foundation of social media, the idea that the interactions on it are between real people. Just as importantly, and this is the thrust of all this, I think, they undermine the assumption that advertisers can use the medium to efficiently reach real people who will shell out real money. More than $16 billion was spent worldwide on social media advertising last year. This money is the primary revenue for social media companies. But if social media is no longer made up of real people, what is it? This February, Facebook stated that about 7% of its then 1.4 billion accounts were fake. That's about 100 million in real terms. In August of 2014, Twitter disclosed in findings of the Securities and Exchange Commission that 23 million, or 8.5% of its 270 million accounts, were automated. It is in the interest of Facebook and other platforms to downplay the severity of the fake accounts problem. In 2014, more than 90% of Facebook's $12.5 billion in revenue and about 90% of Twitter's $1.4 billion in revenue came from advertising. If researchers are correct that advertising on social media leads to a high percentage of fake likes and fans and followers, the entire business model could be called into question by advertisers. Well, yeah. And another news about tech gone awry, I find myself astonishingly agreeing with Charles Krauthammer from the Washington Post. We've asked the question in this program before of why anybody would read Charles Krauthammer. But I guess like a stopped clock, even he can be right on a, on a sporadic, if regular basis. Krauthammer wrote last week that America's doctors are deeply demoralized about the practice of medicine which is true. I was lamenting this very fact with a colleague from many years ago, a physician friend of mine, who I've now made my doctor. Says Krauthammer, the healing profession they joined is now plagued by incessant interference from insurers, lawyers, and the government, deeply eroding doctors' autonomy. Topping their grievances is the Federal Electronic Health Records, EHR mandate, that all medical offices go paperless by January 2015. President Obama promised the digitizing records would save billions of dollars and countless lives. But instead, EHR has exacted a devastating price, and not just on doctors. Just think of your own doctor's visit, how much less listening, examining, and even eye contact goes on because your doctor is tapping data into a computer, scrolling and clicking. One study found that emergency room doctors spend 44% of their time filling out forms instead of tending to the sick and injured. Well, I think Krauthammer is not wrong about any of this, although he somewhat overstates the case. We've always been expected to keep records in medicine, and administrative-type jerks have always urged us to write everything under the sun down on the paper. So even before electronics uh, emerged on the scene, uh, doctors did spend too much of their time filling out forms instead of tending to the sick and injured. But the problem with the EHRs, as we talked about in this program previously, was that they were a half-baked idea 
and that the systems were not standardized, meaning that, say, Kaiser might have one and the VA might have another, and they can't talk to one another. Worse, the EHR company might sell you a bill of goods and set up your office and then disappear. Anyway, well, wonders never cease. Charles Krauthammer mostly got it right. Whew. Right, let's hunt up some good news, shall we? How about this? Labor activists have won a landmark victory in Los Angeles. As reported in The Guardian, the L.A. City Council voted 14 to 1 last week to raise the city's minimum wage from $9 to $15 an hour by 2020. Seattle and San Francisco have recently made similar moves and will enact the $15 minimum wage by 2017 and 2018, respectively. Predictably, knuckleheads like BloombergView.com signed off saying, activists won't like to hear it, but this wage hike will hurt workers. I'm not saying businesses will shut their doors en masse or start laying off staff. This is a Megan McArdle writing in Bloomberg View. But over time, employers will decide not to add workers. Struggling firms will slip into the red. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about all these companies that pay their executives three, four hundred million dollars? <laughs> we talked about these guys running hedge funds getting paid a half a billion dollars sometimes where their hedge fund does not outperform the market. Any chump can buy an index fund that tracks with the market. These guys do less well than that and are richly rewarded to the tune of a half billion dollars for their financial genius. All that's okay, but 15 bucks an hour, oh man, that's going to wreck the economy. Writingintheweek.com, Jeff Sprose said, please spare me the tut-tutting. Our society rigorously enforces the notion that everyone has a moral obligation to work. But when we refuse to require that employers pay wages that people can actually live on, that's a clear recipe for worker exploitation, as one can imagine. The New York Times sounded off saying opponents of higher mandated wages insist that higher pay will lead to layoffs and cl business closings. But these are the same arguments that have been trotted out since 1938 when the minimum wage was first introduced. Experience and research prove the critics wrong. Higher costs to employers are offset by lower turnover and higher productivity. Speaking of productivity, there's a currently a lawsuit going on, uh, as reported in the Sacramento Bee by Denny Walsh and Sam Stanton against the California Highway Patrol. The CHP has consistently denied that its officers are subject to a quota. In fact, the practice is illegal under state law. And agencies found to use a quota have paid millions of dollars in damages. Despite that, a veteran CHP officer testified in Sacramento this month that he was subjected to monthly admonishments from his superiors to boost his, quote, enforcement contacts, unquote, with motorists to at least 100 a month. In fact, the court's kind of been woken up by some documents here that indicate that, well, maybe there are some quotas going on over there. U.S. District Judge William B. Shubb said, I would think the CHP should be ashamed of that document. They're referring to performance reviews where officers were urged to pull over more motorists. They quoted Michael Haddad, one of two Oakland attorneys representing a Citrus Heights man who is suing the agency for false arrest. Haddad's partner repeated that claim, saying that you can see from the evaluations that the CHP certainly has a quota. The quota is 100 a month, even if they don't encounter 100 people who are doing something that is wrong. Officials at CHP headquarters said they could not comment on pending litigation, but flatly denied Monday that such quotas exist. But then again, they would, wouldn't they? By the way, did we mention that the opinions voiced on this program do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California? We should, because in truth, they don't. We think it would be good if they did. But the truth is, they just don't necessarily represent uh, the views of any of those folks. 
And a view we want to take a moment to explore is, well, the premise that the U.S. needs to go metric. Radio Parallax takes the position that in some instances, the U.S. should indeed go metric. But the truth is in areas like engineering, pharmaceuticals, and science, we already do use the metric system because it just works so much better when you're trying to calculate things like volumes and, well, almost any damn thing that's (laughs) measured in tens. On the other hand, we take the position on this program that when it comes to, for example, the temperature outside or the temperature in your body, Fahrenheit is the way to go. First of all, it's more accurate. The degrees are inherently more precise. Second of all, when Fahrenheit originally designed the system, he made the triple digits 100 about body temperature. And the truth is, when you hit triple digits, you're uncomfortable. There's a big deal. Something happens. Big change. When you go from 98.6 body temperature up to 100, first of all, our cooling mechanisms don't work so well, and so you know it's hot. Meanwhile, back in Celsius, if you go from 37 to 38 or 39, well, it's just, you know, come on. And if you're talking about highway miles versus kilometers, well, they're pretty much equally good. Plus, I have an inherent bias towards miles because it turns out that like a Roman legionnaire, if I pace off a thousand paces, it's a mile. Exactly. This was actually useful once when I had a job in college where I had to pace off a quarter mile and take an auger out and dig a soil sample out of the ground. But there's some other arguments I hadn't thought of of why, you know, the metric system isn't, you know, isn't all that. When it comes to measuring, there's no unit of measure between a centimeter and a meter. Since a meter is longer than a yard and a centimeter is less than a half inch, well, that's a bit of a problem. I mean, how much better are we off, really, if a 10 by 10 room (laughs) becomes a 3.048 meter by 3.048 meter room? Anyway, that's all I got to say about that. We need more good news. How about the fact that Safeway is now offering fair trade tuna? Hopefully other big retailers will follow and we'll get a chance to have more socially responsible seafood. That's a good thing. To sell something under the Fair Trade banner, it has to be certified by, the, by Fair Trade USA. And uh, this includes producers of coffee, tea, clothing, and, and, and now seafood and other products. They have to meet both human rights and natural resource standards. Of course, beware. Like those uh, fake Facebook uh, people, we know there's a lot of uh, cheating going on in the, in the world of, uh, well, corporate greenwashing. But uh, anyway, this, you know, it's a good thing. Trying to turn this in a positive direction, so I guess I shouldn't talk about the anthrax story currently circulating about. Yeah, Defense Department apparently mails out anthrax spores accidentally. Oh, we're supposed to have gotten rid of these weapons. But they keep claiming I have to do some research on them so that in case someone uses these weapons against us, which is just BS. By the way, it's recently come out that uh, the entire FBI investigation of the anthrax attacks back in 2001 were... In the words of one investigator, BS. Actually, it was the head of the FBI's anthrax investigation, but we don't have time for that today. Let's do something a little lighter here. I was tempted to pull a clip off of uh, Jerry Seinfeld's recent comments about uh, not liking to play colleges because everything has gotten so PC. A viewpoint echoed by Chris Rock, among others. But uh, I think instead on that same theme, I'm going to quote from this Dick Cavett book, which I got, which I've been enjoying very much, titled Brief Encounters, Conversations, Magic Moments, and Assorted Hijinks. 
He wrote one column titled In Defense of Offense, which I think I'll just read from. Network executive, we're afraid some viewers might be offended. Dick Cavett. So? Thus began, with my shocking impertinence, my first lesson in network nervousness. It couldn't have come at a more discouraging time. I had just finished taping my very first show on on ABC. I was proud of my lineup of guests. The guest booked were three distinct personalities, what what is known in the talk show game as a good mix, Muhammad Ali, Angela Lansbury, and Gore Vidal. The talk was brisk and lively, and there was much gratifying laughter from the studio audience. I came off stage relieved not to be dripping flop sweat and delighted to have the first one down and in having it go so well. I expected a cheery slap on the back from the network man and more or less got it, only it was applied elsewhere. Nobody gives a damn what Muhammad Ali and Gore Vidal think about the Vietnam War. Shock preceded anger. Hadn't I done what I was supposed to do? Booked remarkable guests? kept the conversation ball in the air, and entertained the viewers? Apparently not. I asked what it was about the show I'd just done the network would be worried about. We just don't want to offend anyone, he said to my wondering ears. So that was that. Someone, somewhere, might be offended. I've never quite understood why this word offended is so horrifying. What doesn't offend somebody? Who wants to see, read, or write anything that is Simon Pure in its inability to offend those dreaded someones? What could be more offensive than an offense-free show, I sincerely inquired of the network suit. That was considered offensive, by the way. My favorite first dose of offended reaction is one I may have reported here before. It came from an apparently ruffled resident of Waco, Texas. My secretary was reluctant to show it to me. Handwritten in pencil and all in caps, it read, Dear Dick Cavett, you little sawed-off faggot communist shrimp. A lot of thought went into that. Untypically, there was a return address, so I shot right back. I am not sawed-off. Anyone working in the media can tell you there seems to be an always-ready-to-explode segment of the populace for whom offense is a fate far worse than anything imaginable. You think offense is one of the most calamitous things that could happen to a human being, right up there with the loss of a limb or just missing a parking place. What is our obligation to the offendees? To help them limit their suffering by avoiding all offense? With what advice? You could stay in the house, watch no TV, read nothing of any kind, including potentially upsetting snail mail or email, and you just might manage to glide through an offense-free day. Stay cocooned and you will risk no insults from rude waiters, no pain from gruff clerks, no snarls from any employees of United Airlines. What sort of things offend you, Mr. Cavett, an interviewer asked me recently. In other words, what to you is politically incorrect? Cavett. Anything that is politically correct. Such as, well, the infantilism of the phrase, the N-word, for example and of those of less than fully formed cerebral development who have bodlerized Mark Twain's masterpiece because of the references to Huck's beloved friend Jim as a nigger in the authentic vernacular of the time. I hate to spoil the fun of the benighted and alleged educators who have even pulled this great book from the school shelves, but Jim is the moral center of the story. Presumably those same people would deny students the pleasure of Joseph Conrad's The what person of color of the narcissus? Why endow a word everyone knows with such majestic power that, like Yahweh of the Old Testament, it cannot be uttered? 
Anyway, we agree with Mr. Cabot, also Mr. Seinfeld, and Mr. Rock, and, and Mr. Jay Leno. Last week, he went on Seth Meyers' program, Late Night, to make the following observations. College kids now are so politically correct. I mean, to the point where, I'll give you an example. We had interns at the show, college interns. Like the last year of the show, one of the interns comes in and says, Mr. Leno, I'm getting lunch. What do you want? I said, I don't know. Where you going? He says, we're getting Mexican. I said, I don't really like Mexican. He goes, whoa, that's kind of racist. You know, being anti-guacamole is not racist, okay? You have no idea what racism is. That's not racism, you idiot, you, you moron. Anyway, I think we might want to take a break. Let's do that. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Let's hear in our third segment from our old pal Gary Chu, shall we? Oh, you're a hot 